0: This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship the Lord our God.
1: The Lord at all times. God's praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, let the humble fear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt God's name together. I sought the Lord, and God answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Look to God and be radiant, so your faces shall never be changed. We adore you, holy God, ultimately unknowable, yet intimately known. We glorify you, hallowed Savior, hidden yet revealed in flesh of our flesh. We praise you, Holy Spirit, disruptor yet advocate. By parable and paradox, be present among us in this hour, unsettling our certainty with the gift of your unimaginable love, whom we dare to name Father, Son, Son and Holy Spirit.
0: You may be seated. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Both all of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the house of the Lord And because it is in God's house that we are gathered, our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. Christ welcomes all, and so in his name do we as well. We'd be delighted if you would let us know who you are by signing your name on the friendship pad, even if you're the only person on your pew, and passing it down the pew, if there's anyone else with you, and back again. And then when everybody's had a chance to look at it, rip that sheet off and place it on top. It makes the ushers work a whole lot easier, I'm told. I'd like to invite you as well for a time of fellowship at at the conclusion of this service, which will take place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a short ramp. And there you will find that our deacons have laid out some cookies and some coffee, but most importantly the opportunity for us to engage with one another face to face in a common life together. I'd like to highlight a few things in particular from your announcements for your attention in weeks upcoming. The first is to note that uh, today is week one of a five-week series on the Lord's Prayer and our sermons. And I would say if you've ever wanted to talk more about a sermon afterwards, this is your chance. So go to Fellowship Hour, get a, a cookie and a cup of coffee, and then make your way up to the McCall Room, where Dolores Brisbane will today lead our discussion on the Lord's Prayer and on the, the first clause of the Lord's Prayer. I'd like to note as well that next Sunday we want you to come to church early, come really early, come at 10 o'clock and enjoy a brunch that will bring our two worshiping congregations together, both our 9 o'clock and our 11 o'clock. We don't often get to see each other, but we remember from the summer how wonderful it was all to be together. Well, this is another occasion where we can all be together. So come for brunch at 10 o'clock next Sunday, and then we'll have regular worship at 11 following that. Our Women of Wit and Wisdom have a wonderful opportunity coming up on September the 21st. You can read about that and let Diane Rogers know if you'd like to come. uh, The email address for that is in the bulletin. And you'll note as well that we are offering a new members class on the 25th of this month. That takes place from 10 to 2 with worship and lunch in the middle. And if you have worshiped with us a short time or a long time, it matters not. If you believe God is calling you to be a part of this congregation, we would love to include you in that class. And you can email me directly about that through the church's webpage. Actually, my email address is right there in your bulletin. I'd love to hear from you so that we can be sure to include you in that. And that offering is both in person and it will be hybrid. So if you are one of our folks who worships with us online and would like to participate in that class, we'd love to welcome you to it as well. Just send me a note either way. With all of these things noted, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin.
1: Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, says Jesus, than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance, trusting in Christ's gracious promise. Let us together confess our sins. Our Father, which art in heaven, we were made to love and serve you. You call your church into being, that your hallowed name may be a source of constant good news. You have modeled for us what you expect from us, showing us generosity and mercy. But we have been mistrustful of your love, we have sought to contain your holiness. We have not lived up to the relationship you want from us. But merciful God, we know you are a loving parent whose kindness is unfailing. Restore us to right relationship with you that we might proclaim your good news. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For God knows how we were made, God remembers that we are dust, and in Jesus Christ, God forgives. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The first lesson is from the book of Exodus, the 32nd chapter. With the help of the Holy Spirit, listen for God's word to us this day. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you, I will make you a great nation." But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring upon his people. The second lesson is from 1 Timothy, beginning to read in the first chapter. I'm grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
0: The gospel lesson is taken from the 15th chapter of Luke, the first 10 verses. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the one coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks be to God.
0: Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A little over 20 years ago, I took a group of recent high school graduates to retrace the footsteps of St. Paul. Actually, we were retracing the footsteps of John Calvin and St. Paul because the planned trip to retrace the steps of Jesus in Israel had been sidelined due to political instability in the region at the time, reminding us that what we may consider holy can oftentimes reside in places of deep turmoil. So instead, we started in Geneva, which they were moderately enthusiastic about visiting, and then moved to Athens from where we would go to retrace Paul's missionary journeys. It turns out that the best way to take 18 high school seniors to follow Paul's steps involved a cruise ship. When the itinerary was announced, I found that their enthusiasm for the Pauline corpus suddenly skyrocketed. One of the final stops on our trip, though, had nothing to do with Paul, but instead with St. John. We were to visit the island of Patmos, where tradition says that the John of the Gospel and the letters, by then a very old man, received the vision from the Lord that formed the book of Revelation. The island is home to many monasteries, as well as the Cave of the Apocalypse, which is also known as the Grotto of St. John. And many Christians consider a visit to the island of Patmos to be a pilgrimage. Shepherding a herd of adolescents to visit the holy site did not promise to be a holy experience. They were a rowdy bunch, by then close to the end of their trip and very close to going away to college, and with each passing day they seemed to get just a teensy bit more rebellious. As my co-leader and I shushed them, we worked our way up the winding pathway between the monasteries where the monks were engaged in prayer and silence toward the grotto. We entered the church that is built on the site, and we began to work our way back down into the cave. Just before I was about to fiercely shush them one more time, I noticed that they were growing quieter on their own something about the the weight of the atmosphere seemed to diminish the volume of, of them as well as the other tourists and pilgrims until by the time we reached the place where by tradition John laid his head as he received the vision, everyone had fallen silent, including my pack of 18-year-olds. The experience was one of wonder and awe. One might go so far even as to call the experience of the holy site a holy experience. And I confess, I entered the cave with zero expectation of experiencing anything other than trying and likely failing to prevent my group of rowdy teenagers from committing blasphemy at a holy site. My highest goal was to avoid an international ecclesial incident, but I was surprised by wonder. Have you ever experienced moments of such awe and wonder that the only word you can think of to describe them is holy? what does that mean? How does something become hallowed? This past week, the President described the White House as the hallowed house of the people, and he's not unique in characterizing a secular place as sacred. In the Gettysburg Address, President Lincoln noted that nothing those gathered on that field could say would consecrate or hallow that ground more than the lives that had been given there. So what makes a thing hallowed or holy? It's certainly not uncommon to see the language of faith migrate into the language of national identity and politics, but if we drill down on that question, how do we know when something is truly holy? Holy. It's not because a politician says so. It's certainly not because a preacher says so. Our Exodus lesson today surely teaches us that a thing does not become holy just because we say that it is holy. Were that so, then perhaps God would not have been so furious with the Israelites for fashioning an object to be worshipped as holy. God, who has been so faithful to God's people in this story, has reached the end of the tether. To Moses, God says, have you seen what your people are up to? Now, Moses and God had a tempestuous relationship, to be sure. As we see in this lesson, but there's really no question that Moses himself never lost sight of the holiness of God. Not ever, not even from the very first moment. Because from the moment of introduction, Moses is allowed to encounter God, but only with a clear awareness of God's holiness. First, he must take off his sandals as he approaches the holy ground. Then, when he presses God to reveal the divine name, God answers, I will be with you, howsoever I will be with you, as the Tanakh translation recounts the story. Because to have a name for something is to seek to define it, perhaps even thereby to control it. And God, who is holy, cannot tolerate such control. Writing on the Lord's Prayer, John Dominic Crossan observes, God's reply to Moses' question is in effect, my name is the unnameable one. But that is a contradiction in terms. It both gives and does not give a name. It is a bush that both burns and does not burn at the same time. In other words, it is a warning to Moses that we can never fully Adequately or completely name the Holy One. God is fundamentally unnameable. Crossing concludes, though, and yet we must always try. The unnameable one must be named, the unburnable bush must be burned, the sacred ground must be walked on, but unsandaled. We do not determine what is holy, and yet we must observe what is holy. We cannot possess the name of God, and yet we must name God. The first clause of the Lord's Prayer captures the inherent tension that suffuses our faith. We must walk a line between the eminence of God and the transcendence of God. The nearness of God and the holy otherness of God. But how do we do that? And if we take seriously that question, the answer to it must surely leave us, as Kierkegaard noted, overcome with fear. And trembling. Otherwise, we risk treating as ordinary that which is not ordinary, undertaking to describe the sacred with words that will always be profane. If God is holy, and we are instructed to observe God's holiness, hallowed be thy name, we pray each week, how then do we come to God? as Jesus instructs us to do. How dare we call God, the infinite, eternal God, by such a relational term as Father? John Calvin said that we can do so only through Jesus Christ. Writing on Calvin's teachings on the Lord's Prayer, Professor Elsie McKee notes, "'This is possible only through Christ, "'because it is only in Christ "'that we have the privilege of becoming children of God, "'when God puts the Holy Spirit in our hearts "'to enable us to trust and cry, Abba. "'Without Christ as mediator, "'there is no possibility of coming to God. "'However, Christ is the only intercessor we need, And then we, those sinners, may approach our Father directly. Indeed, we must do so, acting in the faith and trust which God's goodness to us inspires. Calvin says that the privilege of calling God Father frees us from our fears. That is how we may approach the Holy God. Naturally, Calvin is writing from a very different theological standpoint from Crossan, separated as they are by both centuries and ideology. Calvin would call the Lord's Prayer a uniquely Christian prayer, whereas Crossan would go so far as to call it a world prayer. But on the point of God's holiness, and the mandate both to relate to God as well as to see God as holy, They are in agreement. Our faith holds in tension the reality that God is holy and God wants to relate to us. It will not do to neglect either side of this truth. Both are essential to understanding God. We hold in tension the truth that God is the good shepherd and is also a jealous God who becomes infuriated with the faithless pursuit of idols. The good shepherd will leave the larger flock to bring home one errant sheep is the same God who demands of Moses that he take off his shoes. The God who sees one coin as equal to the whole musk and visa's fortunes, with us being the coin in this analogy, is the God who despaired over the faithlessness of God's people in making idols and tried to disown them to Moses, who promptly insisted on giving them back. When Jesus tells us that we may address God as Father. Gender is not the issue. The point is, we are invited to use relational language. We use the language of closeness. This is the language of family. But then Jesus immediately adds, Hallowed be thy name. And reminds us that we cannot possess God, but instead must be possessed by God. Giving us freedom to use language to address God does not then mean that we can use that language to define that which we are allowed to know only through divine revelation. God is revealed in Jesus Christ fully, but God is revealed in hiddenness. Just as a Coke bottle cannot hold the ocean, But nonetheless, what is contained is very much the ocean. So Jesus Christ reveals to us everything we need to know about God. But that does not mean that we can contain God in our language. So where does that leave us? With the experience of holiness. What do we do when we encounter the moments, as we surely do, that take our breath away, the sacred space that surrounds the birth of a child, or the sacred journey we take with loved ones as we accompany them as far as we can to death, but then relinquish them in trust to our God, whom we are allowed to call Father or even those places where the experience of beauty strikes us with awe and gives us the closest glimpse we can receive of transcendence. I love the way the late Frederick Beekner put it, Only God is holy, just as only people are human. God's holiness is his godness. To speak of anything else as holy is to say that it has something of God's mark upon it. Times, places, things, and people can all be holy. And when they are, they are usually not hard to recognize. He goes on. One holy place I know is a workshop attached to a barn. There's a wood-burning stove in it made out of an oil drum. There is a workbench, dark and dented, with shallow, crammed drawers, behind one of which a cat lives. There is a girly calendar on the wall, plus various lengths of chain and rope, shovels and rakes of different sizes and shapes, some worn-out jackets and caps on pegs, an electric clock that does not keep time. On the workbench are two small plug-in radios, both of which have something seriously wrong with them. There are several metal boxes full of wrenches and a bench saw. There are a couple of chairs with rungs missing. There is an old yellow bulldozer with its tracks caked with mud parked against one wall. The place smells mainly of engine oil and smoke, both wood smoke and pipe smoke. The windows are small, And even on bright days, what light there is comes in through, comes through mainly in window-sized patches on the floor. He concludes, I have no idea why this place is holy, but you can tell it is the minute you set foot in it, if you have an eye for that kind of thing. For reasons known only to God, it is one of the places he uses for sending his love for the world through. In the end, to encounter the holy is to encounter love, because God alone is holy and God is love which is how it happens that so often the holy can be found in places of profound turmoil. So we draw near to the one who has loved us, even unto death, the one who invites us and allows us and creates us to be in relationship. And in so doing, we say best, hallowed be thy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
1: Together with the Church throughout the ages, let us say what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. In the presence of the Holy God, let us humbly present our lives, our tithes, and our offerings before the throne of grace. You are invited to come forward now or at the end of the service. us pray. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, whose dwelling place is on high and yet who has pitched a tent in the midst of our broken lives, who is without image and yet whose glory we see in the face of Jesus Christ, who is transcendent above our highest thought and imminent closer to us than our every breath. Like the elders of old, in thanksgiving for all that you have been, all that you are, and all that you will be, we cast our crowns before you, lost in wonder, love, and praise. High and Holy One, behold us who are like the returned exiles in Jerusalem, both rejoicing because we are home, yet weeping before the temple still in ruins. We weep for all that was lost 21 years ago today, asking you to quit heaven's height and come near to comfort those whose wounds are opened in the remembering, whose grief has never been forgotten. But we also ask you to stoop to our need as a people. Look with mercy on our nation 21 years later so full of pride and confusion, so, so sure of our own righteousness and so deeply involved in unrighteousness, so confident of our own power and so imprisoned by our fear of the other. Purge us of the vainglory which confuses our counsels, and visit your children with the wisdom of humility and charity. Remind us of the divine majesty under whose judgment we all stand, and of the divine mercy of which we and every other child of yours have common need. Tender Shepherd, accompanying us in the valley of the shadow, we ask your comfort surround the subjects of Elizabeth and beseech you to grant their nation courage as they and their leaders face all that besets them. We continue our prayers for the people of Ukraine, crying with them that your will be done on earth, that the conflict end, and the lives torn asunder by a tyrant be made whole. Until that day, O Most High, be the refuge and fortress for all who live in the crossfire, so that they might not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day. We ask the same of all who live and move and have their being in this city. Comfort the 17 families whose loved ones were felled by a bullet on our streets in the week just past. Renew our resolve in this congregation to live as strangers and sojourners on earth making it clear that we seek a city whose foundation is the love that is stronger than death. Finally, here are thanksgiving for this church, this foretaste of home to which we have returned, its hard pews, its still warm airs, the singers in their places, the organ taking our breath away, the preacher renewed from a week on Iona, the elders and deacons awash in energy, intelligence, imagination, and love. In the year ahead, may we be given the grace to serve you as your hosts above, to praise you without ceasing, and to pray as Christ taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven.
0: gospel narrative. At the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the people was torn from top to bottom in that moment. And late Don Jewell, a marvelous professor of New Testament, tells the story of teaching a class one time, and a young man within it had a perspective he'd not encountered before. So Dr. Jewell was saying, in this moment when the cr- curtain was slashed in half, the people now have access to God. And the young man said, no. I think you've got it backwards. In that moment, God had access to us, so watch out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore, amen.